many years ago, I was living in Western Massachusetts and I decided to come to the three-month retreat. And earlier that year, I had occasionally or on occasion worked with a potter, a Japanese potter in Western Massachusetts, when he needed to fire his kill, his wood-fired kill, I would take the midnight shift and keep the, um, the fire going while he got some rest, and then he would come in and finish off the firing in the morning. And I really appreciated his pottery, his, uh, the simplicity of his uh, pieces. And when I was about to come on the three-month retreat, I thought I'd like to have a, a bowl of his in order to eat my meals from, so that I would have some possession to get attached to, I guess. <laughs> In any event, <laughs> I went to see him and I told him what I was going to be doing, that I was going to be doing a, a three-month silent meditation retreat and that I had come to get a bowl that I would like to use to eat my meals off of. And when he heard what I was going to do, he generously offered and said to me, well, look, uh, why don't you just go in the showroom and the storeroom and pick any bowl you like and I'll give it to you. You can have it. So I felt very elated and picked a simple plate and bowl and brought it to the three-month retreat and used it without breaking it, firmly attached to it, and really enjoyed that whole experience of having and, and nurturing a relationship with this bowl. <laughs> a few years later, I went off to Burma and packed everything away in boxes upstairs in the attic, the bowl included. After my years in Burma, I came back and feeling a lot of gratitude and appreciation for my teachers here, I wanted to offer them something to just express my appreciation and thanks. So I looked through my things and came across this uh, bowl and I said, oh, this is something I really treasure and it's very valuable to me. I'm going to give this. So I offered that bowl to one of my teachers and it was accepted with joy and happiness all around and that felt good. I felt that I got the use I needed out of that bowl and I really enjoyed knowing that someone else was going to appreciate it and enjoy its use also. A couple of years ago, I was invited to dinner in Boston 
with a great benefactor of the Dharma and a great practitioner. And we had a small dinner and on the patio, and as the evening got cooler, we came into her house to uh, carry on with the conversation, and she lived very simply, and her living room, dining room area was pretty bare, just a, a table and a plant and um, a little Buddha an inch or so high on the mantelpiece, and uh, a couch and an easy chair with a little low coffee table in between. And as we sat down on either side of the coffee table to continue our conversation, I saw that bowl on that coffee table. (laughs) And I said, I know who made that bowl. And so I told her the story and come to find out my teacher had offered that bowl to her. And contrary to what you might think, I felt a lot of joy that my teacher had appreciated it and had offered it, and whoever and she who received it also appreciated it enough to have it be about the only thing in her living room, her dining room area. And it just pointed out to me the happiness that one or many people can experience in letting go of material goods. That which we appreciate, that which we value. And in the aggregate, the amount of happiness that the potter must have felt in giving to me, that I certainly felt in giving to my teacher, and that my teacher felt in giving, passing on, the aggregate of happiness is worth far, far more than the value of that bowl. And that bowl continues to be a source of happiness to me when I reflect on my relationship to it. And it points to the interdependence of all things, how we really do share our life with everyone else. Tonight I want to speak about the power of sharing or giving, known in Pali as dana or generosity or liberality or offering. And it is essentially the the spirit of sharing our life with others. Sharing what we have, what we know, what we can do, our time, our energy, our material goods, so that we and others might be happy. I met a man, Maladoma Somme, that some of you may know, who is a shaman of sorts, a, a wise man in a, from an African tribe. And he told me that 
we are indebted to all that give us life. Meaning that everything we touch, every person we meet, every experience we have, we are indebted to. This includes all beings, all inanimate things, Mother Earth, the elements, the weather. Dana or generosity is on the many lists of the Buddha, the first of the paramis or the perfections that the Bodhisattva had to develop and perfect in order to become a Buddha. It's also the first of the ten punya or meritorious actions that beings perform in order to purify their minds, their lives. And it's one of the three pillars of the Dharma. Those practices which must be practiced in order to support the presence of the Dharma in the world. The Buddha said, if beings knew as I know, the resultant benefit of sharing, they would not enjoy the use of gifts without sharing, even if it was their last bit. They wouldn't enjoy its use if there was anyone to share it with. The power of sharing or the resultant benefit is so great that he wouldn't let a single meal go by without sharing it with someone. And I think it's significant to hear that statement of the Buddhas about the power of sharing, because in some way sharing or the ability to let go is the first step and maybe the last step in the softening of our heart that is so often self-preoccupied. Because when we can begin to let go, we can begin to see our connection with others, not be so um, concerned to get for me and mine security or life or whatever, but to see that we are sharing this life with others. When we're isolated in our self-preoccupation, we find reason to be attached, stingy, um, hoarding our knowledge or our goods, and even proud of it. In some ways, we need to acknowledge that these tendencies reside in our mind to be stingy, to be proud, to be greedy, to, to hoard for our own use so that others can't share. 
because in some ways to acknowledge these habits or tendencies in our mind begins to remove their power. It also begins to lessen our identity around them, around our possessions. Traditionally it's said when someone receives alms, monks or nuns, or when any of us receive gifts from another, that we actually receive five things. The first being health and long life. These were these traditional benefits were identified for monks and nuns, but with some adaptation we can see them in our own life. That as we are supported with what we need in our life, we can live more easefully. It's also said that one appearance is beautiful. Partly from radiant satisfaction, but probably from good health also. One has the strength to continue with their Dharma practice. One feels happiness, joy, and delight in the relief of any discomfort that one might have had, and the satisfaction or the enjoyment of the love and compassion or care of others. And we actually receive wisdom or understanding. Because in the receiving of gifts, we in some ways know its value. We have that connection with others. But in the giving of gifts, in the offering of anything of our life, the sharing of our life, it's important to understand our motivation, to really look carefully at why or how or what it is that's moving us to offer our time, knowledge, resources, skills. In part because Generosity is a practice. It's not our cultural conditioning to be so generous in sharing of what we have. And so in order to purify our own minds and to to purify our relationship with others, generosity is something that needs to be practiced as much as sila or mindfulness. When I was in college many years ago, one summer I was working in a in a paper mill, and somewhere in the middle of summer I got hurt on the job, and I was out of work for a few days. And 
taking some uh, pain pills for the the injury I received, and I'd never taken any uh, pain pills at that point, and I didn't realize, I, I didn't understand their effect on me, and <laughs> so I was living with a fellow at the time who was very emotionally sensitive, and his life was a mess. And in my um, pain-free state, (laughs) I was feeling so caring and so sensitive, so compassionate towards him that I thought the thing he really needed to make his life okay was my motorcycle. So, it just seemed like his life was in such a mess that if I gave him my motorcycle, he would really be okay. And so I offered him my motorcycle, which I really liked. And he was skillful enough to say no. (laughs) He wouldn't accept it. And later after I came down off of the... uh, (laughs) When I was feeling a little more pain... I realized that my motivation in offering that motorcycle was not so pure. It was a little contaminated with what I thought I'd get in return from him or my mind was cloudy, at least. It's important to be clear in our motivation and in our intention in, in giving, understanding that the practice of generosity or the practice of sharing our life really is a purification of our mind. It's a direct opposition to the grasping, the holding on, the attachment we have to our things. And in order to truly or genuinely offer anything to another, that attachment or that grasping has to be let go. And in that letting go, there is the purification of the mind. And when we understand that that's why we practice generosity, in order to purify our mind, then we can see that there are infinite opportunities to practice, to develop the mind, to purify the mind. But not only must the attachment to the objects, object or objects, be removed, that requires a sacrifice, but we we must offer without expectation of return, without some agenda or without some um, expectation of reciprocity. And to give out of 
love and respect and caring for the other. Not out of fear, not out of shame, not out of um, an attempt to humiliate someone or to enhance ourself, but just out of the purest interest to purify our mind and to ease the suffering or the unpleasant conditions of another. I myself have had a difficult time learning to practice generosity. And I can remember, I'm sorry to admit, years of coming to retreats and not really hearing that this place, the teachers and staff, even though I was on staff, really live on dana. That this place really runs on dana. And so I've had to look at what has prevented me for years, actually, from sharing, from caring enough to share. And there are habits and tendencies and blindnesses that are deeply conditioned in our life. Sometimes, out of sheer ignorance, we just don't recognize the need. We don't uh, see that others uh, are inadequately cared for or supplied with what they need. Or we may believe that they have enough. If we don't look very close, that might be an easy thing to believe. Or we may believe that others' needs is the only reason to offer. But when we understand that generosity is a practice to purify our own mind, we can see that another's needs is only one reason, not the only reason. Sometimes we might find it difficult to offer anything to another, believing that their needy condition is self-generated. So, when I walk down the streets of Berkeley or any other um, city, some of the people that I see living on the street, I think, um, they must be doing this themselves. They must, uh, not that they want it, but somehow their condition is self-generated. Sometimes I find myself just keeping even unnecessary things for my own use in the future. And after years and years of holding and hoarding and keeping and packing and repacking and unpacking, finally decide it's time to give it away. It's really helpful to move a lot. Sometimes I have felt afraid of being scammed or being taken advantage of. 
thinking that someone doesn't really need that. Or, not offering something within my means because I didn't want someone else to become dependent on it. And often, I find myself just feeling that I just don't have enough myself. Poverty mentality. And how can I share my very limited knowledge or time, resources? And these may be reasons, they may be rationalizations, but in any event, they cloud our mind and they prevent the opportunity for purifying it. And a large part of the practice of dana or giving is to see these habits, see these blind spots, see these fears, these, this ignorance, this lack of caring. And in that moment, to purify our mind of them. And like any practice, it picks up momentum with frequency. So the purity of our giving is really determined by the purity of our mind. And it can be contaminated by wrong motivations or expectations. And such contamination weakens the power or the strength of that happiness. For when we give with a pure mind, then we have a lot of determination, we have a clear motivation, it takes energy, we're sing- we, we are focused on what we're doing, and there brings a lot, of, or there comes a lot of joy, interest, delight, happiness, thinking about doing it, when we're doing it, after we've done it. And so the, the purity of our mind is what really conditions our happiness. If our motivation is contaminated, then we don't feel so at ease. We don't have so much joy. We feel a little mm, disturbed. And we know that there's something unstraight about it. Learning to purify our mind through giving is a deeply personal practice. It really isn't for us to stand beside or outside of another to evaluate them. Only we can really know in our heart where we're coming from and what is motivating us and the purity of our mind. 
There's one fellow here on in the IMS community who, again this year, for the second time, was offered the opportunity to donate bone marrow to someone who was suffering from some disease, I'm not sure what, but and part of the condition of this giving is that you do not know the recipient and you don't know for a year whether they live. And yet, a couple of years ago, he was invited to offer his bone marrow, and he did, and again this year. And this year when he went, he found out that the person who'd received his bone marrow two years ago was still living. Only because whoever it was had received some healthy bone marrow. And we have to look at the motivation. Why would someone do that? There's no, there's no material reward is quite a lot of discomfort. And it's only out of one's, you know, respect for the lives of others that we can do that. When I was in Burma, practicing as a monk, the people of Burma are extremely poor by Uh, contemporary economic standards, and they live on nothing, we would say. And yet, it's estimated that the average Burman, or Burr woman, or Burr person, (laughs) uh, (laughs) it's estimated that that they offer something of, in the order of a quarter to a third of their annual income to support the Dharma. Monks and nuns and temples, pagodas. And such a... Well, it's, it's impossible, it's almost impossible to imagine in our own lives what that would feel like. But when I was a monk, there, I'd been there for several years, and Eventually people, Burmese people, recognized me and would stop in and stop by and and bring gifts. And, you know, there weren't so many Westerners there. And, you know, they would have some connection and want to offer support for continuing Dharma practice. And I guess just because I was there the longest, I got a lot. And I didn't realize the mm, how unique that was, actually, to be the recipient of so much respect and appreciation. And in my room, I, at different times, would just be uh, receiving you know, robes and sandals and umbrellas and food and 
and just all kinds, it just a lot more than I could ever use. And one of the other Burmese monks in the monastery I was staying, one day happened to mention to me the monastery where he grew up as a boy, where he was a, a novice in Upper Burma. And he said that in this monastery, where there was about 20 novices and, and 10 or 20 uh, senior monks, he said in this monastery that each monk would average one piece of a robe, either the upper or the lower robe, per year. And there was times when I was fortunate enough to receive receiving a whole set of robes every week or ten days. And it just you know, it just boggled my mind to think that the Burmese people are so poor that they really can't afford a set of robes for the monks, for the novices. And when I heard that I decided to kind of take that monastery under my wing and whenever I would accumulate another 10 or 20 robes and <laughs> I'd pack them in a box, give them to a monk who would take them up to Upper Burma and distribute them. And I did this several times and it really felt great to just be the conduit for the support of the Dharma or the, of the supporting others to learn and practice. The Dhamma. And in Burma they have a, the understanding that, of course, generosity is the wholesome karma that leads to um, a rebirth in a good plane of existence, either a human or a heavenly realm. And this is a theoretical part. It's said that for being, for offering something to an animal, offering some food to an animal, that one will receive the benefit of that act for a hundred lifetimes. And as one progresses, so to speak, if one offers something to a human, even one who is not virtuous, never heard of the Dhamma, doesn't practice, but in offering support for their life, one receives the benefit for a thousand lifetimes. And if one offers support to a human being who is virtuous, someone who lives an ethical life, that the benefit is received for a hundred thousand lifetimes if you have to live that long. We never know. And so on with increasing realms of benefit if one offers to those who are practicing and any of those who have attained to some degree of purity in their mind and certainly to monks and nuns.
that the benefit is received for incalculable periods of time. It's hard for us to get a to get a grip on it, to just to really what understand it or even to believe it. But I offer it just in case. <laughs> the Buddha said the Buddha said, when giving charity or donations, one should consider wisely whom to give to. Because charity and donations are like seeds. And if sown in fertile soil, they will yield abundant fruit. And if sown in poor soil, one will reap poorly. And we can see how this might work. If we see a hungry man on the street, we can offer that man a fish and he can be quite supported, taken care of at that time. If we can offer that man a fishing pole, he can be nourished and supported many times. If we teach him how to fish, all the more. If we start a fishing school and teach people how to fish, many people can benefit many times. Where we put our offerings, to whom we offer, makes a difference in who benefits or how many, how much benefit will be realized. The Buddha said we should consider carefully to whom we offer. There was one monk in the monastery where I was staying in Burma, named Uzatila, and he had the reputation of being very generous. And in fact, he used to keep in his kuti, just inside the door, uh, there was a couple of shelves with jars of, I can't remember the name of it, but it, essentially it's cane sugar. And his monastery in Upper Burma was where they harvested a lot of sugar cane, and they would press it and let it uh, dry into these cakes, which was just pure sugar. And he'd bring it back, put it on his shelf, and it was understood that any yogi in the monastery at any time that you needed to pick your pick yourself up, a pick me up, that you could go to his cabin and get a piece of this jaggery, jaggery is called. And there was oftentimes a steady stream of people <laughs> in and out of his house, his cabin. And at a time when I was doing a little lighter practice, he asked me if I would teach him English. And so for Every night for three or four months, I used to go see him for about an hour, an hour and a half, and speak English with him and try to get him to learn. Every time I went, he offered me something. Sometimes it was a robe. Sometimes it was just a pen or a notebook 
or a piece of candy or a, or a, a drink, a soft drink. But every time, he never let me out of that, out of his side or out of his room without offering me something. And he was one of the most loved of monks in that monastery. Not because what he was giving was so valuable, but more because of the sincerity of his wish for others to be happy, for others to be cared for, to be supported in their life. What we give is not the primary, need not be the primary consideration in giving. But if what we give we consider inferior or minimal, we're not going to feel so good. We're not going to be so happy. We're not going to receive so much enjoyment. And so we really should consider what it is that we can offer that we feel good about, that has some value to us. Because when the offering is valuable to us, then the happiness is abundant. Just the last couple of days, I've been up in Maine visiting my family over Thanksgiving. And in the course of it, we were looking through old uh, photos of the family, family photos. And there were just, you know, how it is, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. And a lot of photos of people that we didn't know, didn't recognize, you know. They were just too young or too old or so far back, I didn't know who they were. And none of us knew. And so uh, I collected a few of them that I wanted for to be attached to. <laughs> and as I was leaving, I met one of my aunts at the airport and asked her who these people were in these photos. And here was this elderly woman who just was this wealth of knowledge about my ancestors. And in just talking with her for a half hour, she filled me in on just infinite details about people that some I knew and some I didn't and the relationship between them. And it just... In it helped clear up a lot of mystery about who who is in my past back there. And I was reflecting on how valuable a piece of knowledge can be.
the Buddha said, the gift of the Dhamma excels all other forms of giving. There are many ways to give the Dhamma, to share the Dhamma. And I want to tell a story to is an example of the ways to share the Dhamma. After I'd been in Burma, I guess about four years, I was planning on leaving. And two Burmese women came to see me, and they spoke English, and they said that they would like to take me to meet their teacher. And I had met many teachers and wasn't so interested really, but these women were insistent and something about them was endearing, so I agreed and on the appointed day they came to pick me up in a, a taxi and we were driving to North Rangoon. And on the way to meet their teacher, they told me a little bit about him. And they said that at this time, it was about 40 years prior to that, he had been the, what do you call it, the number one teacher at the monastery I was in when that monastery first opened or when that meditation center first opened. Mahasi Sayadaw had asked him to be the teacher. And after teaching there for a few years, he, the meditation center was growing and was becoming uh, very busy and a lot of people were coming to practice. And it wasn't really what he wanted to do, be involved with so many people in such a big place and all of the politics that's involved in running a big place. So he asked Mahasi Saido if he could leave and to go on his own, and uh, Mahasi said no. So he continued to teach meditation uh, for a few more years, and the monastery continued to grow and get bigger and more complex, and his duties and responsibilities became even more burdensome. And he again asked his teacher if he could leave, and his teacher again said no. And after he'd been there 10 years teaching with the expansion of the monastery and thousands, tens of thousands of people coming to practice, he again went to Mahasi and asked if he could be relieved of his teaching and, and go on his own. And Mahasi finally said yes. So he left the monastery in central Rangoon and he went to the northernmost edge of Rangoon where Rangoon met the jungle and he found a cave there and he decided to stay there. So he went to this cave and he just started doing his own practice and he had a lot of integrity and a lot of diligence in his practice and it didn't take long before people in the area heard about him and saw him on alms round and asked him if um, he would teach them how to practice. And he agreed modestly. And over time, they, they carved him out about a two-acre, I think it's about two-acre 
parcel of forest right there by the cave and gave it to him as a monastery. And over the course of the following 30 years, he continued to live there and practice and to teach those lay people who would come to him from the neighborhood. And in the course of those 30 years, the last 30, 35 years now, Rangoon has grown in his direction. And his little two-acre forest monastery is in the middle of a huge sprawling suburb of people who have come to that area in order to practice with him. So I was going to go meet this uh, monk. And we stopped uh, outside of the forest, little forest grove, in this vast sprawl of slums, and went into this little forest. And it was bliss. It was just so quiet and so peaceful. And there was such a kind of order to the place. And he lived in this little forest glen with about, I don't know, six or eight or ten monks and about four or five novices, little, little, little boys. And over the years, the villagers had built a huge wooden meditation hall where they would come to practice and each evening he would give a, a Dharma talk. And they'd also built a dining room where all of the monks could eat and the lay people could eat also. And there was, at that time, 15 or 20 elderly Burmese women who lived in the monastery also. And they had been built a small dormitory. And the monasteries in Asia are something like the um, retirement villages for people. When they finish their work, their family work and their uh, occupations, whatever, they, they kind of retire to the monasteries. And then they you know, help sweep and care and you know, tidy up and practice. So there's about 20 women living there and one layman a dozen monks and a few novices. So I went in, and this monk, I had heard, <coughs> wasn't interested in you know, becoming famous or having a big place. And in fact, he refused most offers of support. People had offered to build nicer buildings and to put in electricity and a phone and pavement, you know, so that the cars could drive right in. And, and he just said, no, no, I don't want that, I don't want that, I don't want that. I just want you to practice. But whenever anything needed to be done, he would just say, okay, on, on this day we're going to repair this cabin or we're going to build this room. And everything would show up, people would show up, and it would happen. And he refused to let any of the trees be cut. And so we had this beautiful place in the middle of this mess. So when I went in to see him, paid my respects, and 
basically told him what I was doing, that I'd been in Burma for a few years and practicing and was soon going to return to the West, and it was just open for any advice that he might have to offer. So he asked me a few questions about my practice and what had been going on, and then he said, when you return to the West, Just continue to practice, and everything else will take care of itself. Now, you know, when you go to these wise men or wise women in the East, you think that you're going to get some very special nugget, you know? You're going you're gonna to get the missing teaching, the final thing. And it's usually something very simple. Just don't forget to practice. Everything else will take care of itself. So, I asked if I could practice with him. I had a month or so left, and he said yes. So after a couple of days of getting my permit to, to stay with him, I went back to his monastery and asked where I could stay. And he said, well, come with me. And he took me out to the, to the back of his, the door of his cabin, where he had a long walking room built. And it's about four feet wide and 60 feet long. And at one end, there was a, a mat on the floor for sleeping. And there was a little room off to the side where there was a toilet. And that's where he used to practice. He would just walk and sit, sleep, go to the toilet, walk, sit, sleep, go to the toilet. And so he said, you can practice here in, in his place. So I said, oh, okay. What time is alms round in the morning? Because monks, as you know, go on alms round to get their food for the day. And he said, well, normally we leave at 6 o'clock. But since you only have a few weeks here, why don't you practice? And I and the other monks will go on alms round. And whatever we receive, we'll share with you. And so you don't have to interrupt your practice. So I was very happy with that. And so I began practicing. And you know how it is when you're practicing for a couple of weeks. There's, yeah, periodically, every four or five days, it just gets overwhelming and, you know, you've got to kind of um, back off. And so I was in this room, sitting and walking and sitting and walking and sleeping and going to the toilet. And <laughs> when it was time to back off, I'd want to go out into the monastery and walk around. So I'd, I'd just in my kind of frenetic and frustrated and difficult practice space, I would go to the door and open the door to go out, and he'd be standing right there. <laughs> he didn't speak English, but he would just look at me with the most caring, loving, supportive eyes, as if to say, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Just keep practicing. And I'd go out and wander around the monastery for a while and then go back in. And four or five days later, I'd be uh, needing some uh, backing off again. And I'd open the door and he'd be right there again. <laughs> and this happened about three times. And I began to believe, as the women had told me, that it was very psychic and just knew those things. But in any event, 
the last day that I was to be there, he said, uh, tomorrow is your last day here. Why don't you go on alms round with us tomorrow morning? So I said, okay, that'd be nice. So that night there was a festival in the suburbs around the monastery. And festivals in Asia are loudspeakers all night long. People talking and chanting and doing some sort of sing-song stuff. And it just was no sleep. And in the morning, got up and got ready for going on alms round. And we all lined up. And he inspected us to make sure our robes were right and our bowls were right. And, and we started off out the monastery. And when we got to the edge of the little forest grove there, he stepped aside and he waved the other monks by. And when I came by, he pulled me aside with him. And all the other monks went out on alms round. And he turned around and went back into the monastery. And so he just said, follow me. So I followed him. But as I looked out the road of the monastery, I could see a whole line of people lined up along the pathway waiting to offer alms to the monks who came out. But we turned around and gone back in, and we went out the back way. We went out the, the back gate of the monastery, and there wasn't anybody out there. It was just a kind of a dusty ox cart track, and we walked for five or ten minutes kind of behind the, in the alleyways of this suburb, and didn't meet anybody. But at the time, I just, there wasn't any cars, there wasn't any noise, there wasn't any people, it was just dusty ox cart track, and I was following this monk that seemed like the Buddha to me. And it was just so simple and so rewarding, a lifestyle. And we turned a corner and we came into a view of the marketplace, and as soon as they saw us, somebody hollered out, Ponjilabi, meaning the monks are coming on alms round, and immediately everyone in that little marketplace looked to see where the monks were coming from and got something from one of the vendors, a bag of rice or some curry or a fruit or a baked good or something. And then they would kneel in the, along the side of the road, and when we came walking up to the first person that was there, they offered us their gift. And we just stood there. And more people came, and more people came. And, you know, bowls aren't too big. They're only, you know, a quarter or two. And in no time, the bowl was full. So some, one of the market, one of the vendors nearby gave us some plastic bags and <laughs> took everything out of the bowls and put them in these plastic bags. And we still stood there, and more people came and offered more. And by the time we left that spot, ten minutes later, there was this trail of little Burmese boys carrying these big bags full of <laughs> offerings trailing along behind us. And we went on a two-hour alms round that morning. And everywhere we went, it was the same. Hundreds of people so appreciative of that monk and the integrity of his life and practice 
that they were just ecstatic, joyful to be able to offer something for his or our day's support. And that's the way that that monk has lived in that community for 30 years. Offering the Dharma and being supported and the lay people being supported in their practice. I heard after I, the day after I had stopped practicing with him, he had uh, left his monastery and gone to southern Burma, where he practiced himself in isolation every year for three, four, sometimes up to seven or eight months. And he would have gone earlier, I'd heard, except that he waited until I had had my opportunity to practice and then he left to do his own. He's a very inspiring teacher for me. Why don't we sit for a couple of minutes? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.